You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. We're spending, we're kind of in the middle right now of a 11-week look at Philippians, um, including our already past Ash Wednesday service. We have 11 sermons on Philippians. And what can be challenging, um, something we can oftentimes forget about when we're reading through letters like this over a long period of time, is that these letters were written really probably in one sitting and meant to be read in one sitting, right? And so um, what we read today and what we're teaching on each and every time we gather is always a continuation of the previous sermons in our series, and that's going to show up again today as well. It's helpful for us to recognize, if you've been with us, this will sound familiar. If not, we'll catch you up. Paul's letter to the Philippians really has two overarching uh, reasons, uh, functions, purposes. Uh, One, his expression of gratitude and thanksgiving for them as a people. Right? He's sitting in prison in Rome. He's expressing his gratitude for the support that they've given to him, even financial support directly. His thanksgiving for them. The second purpose for this letter is to urge them for unity and toward unity in the gospel. Okay, we've been hearing about that unity especially build upon itself in the last couple of weeks. In chapter 1, verse 27 was the first real command of Paul in the letter for the people. So after introducing the letter a little bit, he says, live side by side in the gospel, right? Have one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. It's a command for them. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we, we talked about what that looks like in a church community. Well, it's one thing to strive side by side. What does that look like? It looks like selfless humility. Okay, that was that sermon. And then Paul, in talking about that, if anybody would wonder why, why is that important? He roots all of what he just said and what he's been saying in the person of Christ, because Christ has done this for us. We need to be these people. And then he urges them to double down on that commitment in obedience. We heard that last week in obedience, the importance of obedience and continued sanctification. And today in verse 19, starting verse 19 and going through verse 30 in chapter 2, Paul's going to give us present day examples of what all that looks like, right? He's creating, he's commanding the people to move toward unity. What does that look like in the church? It's because of Christ. You have to obey. What does that look like presently in people around us? He himself is doubling down on what he's already written and commanding of the church. So follow along with me as we pick it up here in chapter 2, starting in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I, may, I too may be cheered by good news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he served me in the gospel, with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see as it, how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for all of you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. 
I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please bow your heads as I pray for us. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the revelation that you give to us that we would know you. Thank you for writers like Paul who urge us and command us to live a life worthy of the gospel. I pray that we would be instructed by the Spirit and the interpretation and understanding of these words this morning, that we would glorify you. Amen. In 2019, a couple years ago, I attended a conference. And one of the speakers at that conference was a man named Louis Gravance. For much of his career to that point, Louis had a, what sounded like a pretty cool job. Right? He designed live entertainment experiences and customer service training for programs at Disney. Okay, now regardless of how you feel about Disney, right, they've even been in the news the last week or two uh, for reasons that Christians could be aware of and maybe even should be aware of. Okay, and we're not going to go in that right now. Regardless of how you feel about Disney, Disney is known worldwide for their customer service excellence and their quality of experience. And Louis Gravance, right, the man at that conference, he's one of the guys okay, that you either have to thank or maybe you want to secretly loathe, okay, for how precise and how unrelenting Disney is when it comes to their out-of-this-world immersion into a fairy tale land. They do it better than anybody, okay? And in Louis' presentation, I remember it vividly, he talked about the importance of the look, sound, feel, and smell of Disney, right? He talked about a number of examples of where that showed up in his work and throughout the park and throughout Disney, Fascinating to listen to. He talks specifically also about the opening of the park each day. Now, I went when I was a child, my family took that. I don't really remember the opening of the park when we arrived there. If you've been there recently, maybe this will stir some memories for you. He talked about the line of people that would be pushed against the, the doors and the, and the railing, ready to, for the door to open, for them to rush in. And as they're standing there, everywhere, everyone stands, there's this view of the castle. Right, that Disney castle, and at some point in the morning, Cinderella comes out on the balcony, and she stands, and you can see her. He talked about the streets. Even if they were clean already, every morning, purposely watered down, so that when the sun comes up, they would glisten in the sunlight. He talked about the smell of popcorn being made well before the park would even open, knowing, he said, we know nobody buys popcorn at 7 in the morning, but we want you to smell it because right? it stirs something within you. And he talked about how you're waiting there in line, the music slowly comes on in the morning, and you hear it. Dun, 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 dun. Right? That music comes on. And if you hear him, you're like, Steve, that's not very good. It's like, that's the point. I'm not Disney, but Disney is. Right? The music comes on, and you go like, that's Disney. Right? He said Disney is not just a noun, it's an adjective. Right? He even said it's a narrative. Is to be expressed in the comment, that look, that sound, that feel, that smell, that is Disney. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, is urging and pleading with them for the people to fit the narrative of being a Christian. Not just an intellectual alignment, but also a functional practice. 
not just a, a heart-level passion, but also an obedience, an obedience that flows from the heart. And not even just ceremony, okay, but also, an, also a, a genuine and selfless service to one another in actual love. Everything to this point in the letter that we've read already in Philippians is already expressing this. And now Paul speaks of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And they're both examples of that dynamic narrative of a Christian. What it means to look, sound, feel, and smell like a Christian. So let's learn more about these men today. And from our passage, be challenged to see three things. That Christians are united on what really matters. They serve one another. And they honor one another. Okay, they're united on what really matters, they serve one another, and they honor one another. Okay, first, Christians are united on what really matters. In verse 20, Paul identifies Timothy as a rare person, right, saying that he has no one else like him. And in the ESV, which we read this morning, the phrase, no one else like him, uh, is loaded with more meaning than initially comes across. Okay, it means more literally, no one else like-minded, and no one else of the same spirit, or no one else of the same soul. Okay, Paul is saying that Timothy is of the same mind and the same spirit and the same soul as himself. That Timothy is an extension of Paul, and that he will genuinely care about the welfare of the Philippians. And the same-mindedness, remember this is one letter we're reading, we just read a portion this morning, this same-mindedness language of Paul, it draws us right back to chapter 1, verse 27 where he charged all the church in Philippi, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or if I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith in the gospel. And then it goes on in verse 28 and verse 29 to describe more of what that looks like. Not frightened by anything in your opponents. Not only believing in him, but also suffering for his sake, right? Not just intellectual belief, but also functionally suffering and living out of that belief. These tenets are core to the like-mindedness that Paul shares with Timothy. And a bit further from there, earlier in chapter 2, from where we read this morning, 2 verse 2, Paul charges the Philippians to complete his joy by being, again, of the same mind, it says, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In another translation, in the Holman Christian Standard, it says, thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. These are rich words from Paul that urge the Philippians to have rich unity with one another that goes beyond just doctrinal agreement. That is really important. And if you live in our church for all, you're like, yeah, we really care about doctrine. You're going like, to learn that. okay? But it moves from doctrinal agreement to relational harmony with and for one another. That's who and that's what Timothy is to Paul. And as for Epaphroditus, in verse 25, he calls him a brother and a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. In the Holman translation, fellow worker is written as co-worker or co-laborer. So that is not just also a worker, not just someone else who works, but a worker who is literally alongside Paul in the same work, doing the same thing. Each of these descriptors speak to the unity that Paul had with Epaphroditus. 
despite Paul not spending as much time with him in his life as he did with Timothy. Right? We know from other portions of Scripture, Paul and Timothy spent a lot of time together. Epaphroditus and Paul, not nearly as much. But even in a short time together, see the significance of what Epaphroditus is. Being a brother signifies the same bloodline. And here it's a spiritual bloodline between them. Being a co-worker signifies a bond with mutual accountability to produce a predetermined and desired outcome. Being a soldier signifies an alignment of every part of one's being with another for the purpose of not only survival, but successful defense and maybe even successful advance. In each of these, being of the same mind really matters. You cannot be of the same work unless you're of the same mind. Right? You can't be of the same work unless you're of the same mind. Jocko Willink is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL officer. And he once said that the best missions that he's been on, including those that he's led as a commanding officer, were the ones in which all he needed to say was the word execute. Right? When it was time to go, execute. At each stage of the mission, execute. Even if their problem arised, execute. We know what to do with that. Right? The underlying goal of every mission was to execute. And to do this, to execute well, required that every person knew the overarching strategy. Every person knew the leader's intent. Every person knew what team they were on and that team's specific, specific mission as part of the overarching strategy. And every person knew what their role meant what they were supposed to play. Right? When you're of the same mind with others, when you have unity, all you need to do is execute. And that's why Paul is drawing attention so much to the importance of unity. Now, does this happen all the time? No, right? It doesn't, right? Not for every soldier in every battle and not for us. Why not? Right? Why does unity not happen? Why can we not just execute with being of the same mind? It's because being of the same mind is really hard. Okay, in families, in workplaces, in friendships, in marriages, in all of these relationships, we become misunderstood by others, and we misunderstand others. Right? We get offended, and we offend others. Right? We become wounded by others, and we wound, and we hurt others. All of this happens in the church, too. I'd even say the longer you spend time in a church, the more you're going to experience this. Right? Is that not true? Can any of you resonate with that? The longer you're in a church, you find that relationship, relational unity is really hard. It takes a lot of hard work. And that's why Paul is writing this letter. Right? It's not apparent in Philippi or by the reading of Philippians that this church is actually in great division. That's different than some other letters that Paul writes. Maybe a letter to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth. There is specific division, real problems that Paul was addressing. Here, not necessarily the case. But Paul is not assuming that unity and like-mindedness is the natural state of people. Right? No, disunity is the most and often natural state of any people. That's why he's writing this letter and charging them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, to stand firm in one spirit and be of the same mind, to obey God as children of God together. That's what Timothy and Epaphroditus have done, and that's what they're doing, and they're examples for us to follow that we would strive to be like-minded brothers and sisters 
co-laborers in Christ, soldiers who battle together against the flesh and against sin, and to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, to be united on these things. And just one more moment before we move on to point number two. I'll abbreviate this because if anyone's sitting there, this is how I feel and even preparing this. It's like, okay, well, how do we do that? If it's hard, what do we do? Right? And the answer is like, we keep doing what we're doing. That's why every time you come and worship with us, we want to preach the gospel. That's our prayer that you would hear it. And if we don't preach the gospel, tell us, hold us accountable. And if you don't live a life that's unified, we're going to tell you. This is vice versa. Right? We do this together. This is the life of a Christian. Okay, this is how we do it. But here, just look at what Paul says. He recognizes this too. It's not a moment that we just achieve and then we're good. Okay, he writes in chapter 1, verse 9 through 10. He writes that it's his prayer for them that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. He's writing that to everybody. The translation in verse 10 with all knowledge and discernment, right? That is essentially, it's literally so you can determine what really matters, right? It's not just approving what may be subjectively determined as excellent. It's not, hey, what do you think is excellent? What do I think is excellent? Eh, we agree to disagree, subjective, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. No, rather, approving what is excellent is determining what really matters, what matters in centrality for the people of God to be united upon, You may hear that language in our church. What are the central things that we have to be united upon? That's what Paul's urging them to be together in. That's what he's calling them to. And knowing what is really important is what makes Timothy and Epaphroditus like-minded with him. That's why they're examples. Here at Liberty, we should be striving for this too. And I think we do strive for it. But never let us rest in doing so. Unity is not the natural state of people especially in a world, right? That's just, unity is not a natural state of people in the church. Think about outside of the church, okay? A world that seems to be increasing in its demise of unity, right? Think about that's an oxymoron in some ways. The world increases in its demise of unity. Identity politics, pitting one group against one another, trying to put people on the right side and the wrong side of history on every conceivable matter, inventing new expressions of old sins, to the harm of our bodies and our minds and our souls. A culture and a people apart from God drives toward disunity. We must, like family, like co-laborers, like soldiers, be united on what is really important for us to know, believe, and obey, so that we look, sound, feel, and smell like Christians. Let's move to our second point. That's unity. Second, Christians serve one another. It can appear that in splitting these first two points, I felt this tension that the the unity of Christians, the service of Christians, that it kind of makes them mutually exclusive, right? You You can have this one and maybe that one, right? Please hear me. They're actually not mutually exclusive, right? I think it's helpful to distinguish them for teaching and for understanding, but they're not mutually exclusive. Christians united with one another serve one another. And Christians who serve one another demonstrate their unity with one another, right? Christians who are united with one another, they serve one another. And Christians who are serving one another, they demonstrate their unity with one another. 
So let's zero in on, on how Timothy and Epaphroditus are models of Christian service. First Timothy. Paul is writing this letter from prison. I said that before. He can't travel to Philippi to see the people himself. He'd like to, but he can't. And he spent the majority of this letter urging people to stand firm in the Spirit, to have their interests be like those of Jesus. Okay, Like Jesus, who we read about in chapter 2, verse 8, who humbled himself as a servant to the point of death on a cross. Paul is writing all of this. He can't come and model it, again, for the people, but he hopes to send Timothy, and in doing so would send Timothy as the example of what he just outlined, that he would be the example of Christ, that he would be the example of what Paul has already been, functionally in humility and in service. Paul's vouching for Timothy, even doing so by comparing him in verse 21 to others who would not embody the humility and servanthood that he's talking about. Right? Think about that for a moment. In verse 21, who is Paul actually referencing there? Right? Why is he comparing Timothy to someone else? Who is that? It's, not, it's probably not the Romans or the, or the I mean, there were, there were believing Romans. There were faithful Romans, but he's not talking about the people I'm among, the Romans, sending them to where you are, right? Because you wouldn't send unbelievers to be a model of this. Maybe it's those that he mentioned in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, right? Those people who preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Remember, we talked about, there might, we even wondered, are those people faithful Christians or not? And Paul says, regardless of whether they are, if they're preaching Christ, we'll applaud that. They're honoring God. Maybe he's referring to them. Likely, though, too, he's referencing other Christians who minister with and around himself and others, not enemies, right? Really, rather, those Christians who are only partially united with Paul and or not as reliable a servant as Timothy is, right? Something's lacking in Christians in one of those two areas that Paul's saying, I can't send this person because he, I can't trust that this person will be, have the unity and the service that you need to see. And this is where we need to see that unity and service go hand in hand with each other in a Christian. One should not be excluded from another. And it's Timothy who's the example of both set apart from others. Indeed, because Timothy will serve the people for their welfare and for the interests of Christ, Timothy's extension of Paul himself. If and when the Philippians are to greet Timothy, Paul's writing they should greet Timothy as if they're greeting Paul. One Christian and another Christian, the same Christian. And they should expect that what Timothy teaches and what he models, what he teaches because he's unified, and what he models in his servanthood is as much the embodiment of Christ's example as Paul's would be. That's what Paul is calling the Philippians to in this letter. And Timothy, he's the example that they're to follow. And now after vouching for Timothy and highlighting his Christian nature as a servant, Paul explains that he is actually sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi. Right? Timothy may come, but here's Epaphroditus. He is coming. He's probably the one delivering this letter back to them. And Epaphroditus is a messenger from the people originally, right? He was sent, likely with a group of people, to deliver to Paul a gift, something that no doubt really included a, a large financial gift to help Paul stay sustained in prison with food and clothing and medical care, right? Epaphroditus is likely already well-known by the people receiving him and reading this letter in Philippi. So why is Paul writing about him? Right? Much of the reason is to honor Epaphroditus, and we'll get there in just a moment. But let's also note that Epaphroditus 
in being united with Paul as a brother, a fellow worker, and a fellow soldier, demonstrates that he is of the same mind. He demonstrates these things to Paul because of his service. Right? Epaphroditus, like Timothy, is the counterexample to the people referenced in verse 21. Epaphroditus gave up his own interests for the sake of his mission. And mirroring how Christ humbled himself in obedience to the point of death, we read that earlier in the letter, Epaphroditus humbled himself in the face of death to the point of not almost, he didn't die, right? He survived miraculously by the mercy of God, but in the face of death, he was obedient. He's an early church example of who Jesus described in Mark 8, that whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. Again, unity and service go hand in hand with each other as a Christian and in a Christian. So much so that Paul can spend, I said this before, significantly shorter amount of time with Epaphroditus compared to Timothy. And he can qualify Epaphroditus as a brother and a model of service because he saw such great examples from, of service from Epaphroditus. And what else would, would Epaphroditus do this service for if not for unity and if not to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel? Jesus in John 13 said, By this all people will know you are my disciples, that you love one another. All right? Loving one another is service. It requires us to put away our self-interests. It requires that we're ready and willing to disregard our own need for the needs of others, like Epaphroditus did, and no doubt even more so beyond what's recorded for us in Scripture. This love and the service is not to be to our own harm in an unhealthy way. There's some really, been some good questions for anybody that listens to the B-Side podcast each week. Okay, there's been some good questions the last couple of weeks about that. How can I serve but also be aware of not being taken advantage of? What if I'm serving and it's to my detriment? How do we, walk, how do we find those lines and do that well? Really good questions right? That, that, that people have asked and that we've been trying to answer well in the B-Side podcast. Keep asking those questions. We, we want to answer them well and know how to do this well as Christians because our love and our service should not be to our harm in an unhealthy way. But at times, it is to overturn our own comfort and our own preferences. In his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this. He says, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. We may pass them by, preoccupied with more important tasks, as the priests passed by the man who had fallen among thieves, perhaps reading the Bible. Right there, he's referencing Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest who passed by the man on the side of the road. That priest, we might even assume, he's just reading his Bible. He's thinking he's being faithful, but he passes by the man in need. Bonhoeffer says, when we do that, when we pass by people, we pass by the visible sign of the cross raised in our path to show us that not our way, but God's way must be done. It is a strange fact, Bonhoeffer says, that Christians frequently consider their work so important and urgent that they will allow nothing to disturb them. They think they are doing God's service. They do not want a life that is crossed and balked, but is part of the discipline of humility to allow our schedule to be arranged by God. It's all right, it's good words from Bonhoeffer. Epaphroditus modeled this humility and love of Christ in his ministry and work toward Paul. 
he, like Timothy, who also had proved his character in his service with Paul in the gospel, that's verse 22, right? How did Timothy prove his unity? They go hand in hand with his service. Okay, it was functional, right? These men together, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they looked, they sounded, they felt, and they smelled like Christ, like Christians. Are we Christians like them? Would you describe me that way? Would you describe others in our church that way? Would anyone describe you that way? Right? In reality, fully, no, we're not that way. Okay? It's convicting for me, too, to, to read this and to prepare. Right? I don't think I look, sound, feel, and smell like a Christian enough, let alone all the time. And I don't think you do either. Okay? And part of what we celebrate as Christians and what Paul highlights everywhere in his writings, and it's going to come up in chapter 3 and beyond in Philippians, is that it's Christ alone who is perfectly righteous. It's not us. He's the perfect example. And Timothy and Epaphroditus are references to Christ, but they're not Christ, and neither are we. But we can't miss this, right? Don't miss this. The challenge from Paul to the Philippians and to us is to be Christians who are united with one another and who do serve one another. There are real Christians, even think about this, there are real Christians who seek too much of their own interests. And there are Christians who are genuinely concerned with the interests of others. Right? We've, we, we can see how we grow in this. And Paul's saying, don't be satisfied, don't be content being those Christians that are partially united or serve sometimes, be both all the time, as much as you can, pursue that in your sanctification. That's why he sent Timothy, and that's why he recommended Epaphroditus. Would anyone send you as an example of Christ for others? Would you send me? Can we be people that send each other to stand in as Christ for somebody else? Trusting the unity, trusting the service. Let me ask you this too. Who in your lives, who in our lives, has been this example for us? Who has looked, sounded, felt, and smelled like a Christian to you and to me? A couple weeks ago, as I was preparing this and writing and getting ready to preach today, I just had a conversation with, with, with another gentleman, didn't think these two things would be connected, found that they were in a way that only God could orchestrate. We were just kind of coaching each other, talking about different things, and he asked me, he said, hey, can you, can you list three people that have influenced you in your life the most, or a lot, right, that you trust, that you have a big, big amount of trust for, and even people that you'd want to model, who are those people for you? And I like, you know, I started, I started actually crying, telling them who they were because they had such an impact on me, right? People, and he said, why'd you choose those three people? And I just started to recount in as much detail as I wanted to share what, who they were to me, how they walked with me in times of great joy and celebration, and how they were with me in times of struggle, and how they just know me. There's no pretense. There's no preservation between each other. They're the type of people that you can connect with and you just feel like you know them and they know you right away. And then he asked me a question. This was convicting. He said, Do you, would they know that you answered that question that way with their name? Would they know that? And I was like, wow, that's a, okay. Two of them, I think, would not be surprised. I said, one of them, I think, would be surprised. I don't think I've, sh- I don't think I've honored him enough that he, would be, that he would expect the answer. I said, neither one of the three would expect their name to be said because in humility, that's who they are. But two of them wouldn't be surprised, maybe one would. He challenged me. He said, you need to go and tell them that. You need to honor them for who they are. 
right? And, and, and compliment them. That was instructive for me. Who are the people that have been that way for you in your life? And I was grateful. I didn't, I didn't force this. I was just in reflecting. I'm like, oh, okay. I picked men, praise God, by his grace and his mercy. I picked men that are examples of servants of Christ. I picked men of great faith in my mind that have influenced me. Do you have people like that in your lives? Who are those people? Would someone send you? Who has been that example for you? Think about that. And to that point, that question that gentleman asked me, to challenge me to go and tell them, okay, um, rooted in this. Again, I just, God orchestrated this. Well, why? Because we should honor the people that are like that for us. And so let's go there next, our third and final point. That Christians honor one another. Paul writes in verse 29 that the Philippians should receive Epaphroditus with joy and that they should honor such men. All right, it's not perfectly clear if he's saying such men, meaning both Timothy and Paul, or if he's saying such men as the man that Epaphroditus proved to be. Right? That'd be, that'd be a fun clarity to have. But the reality is that he's talking about both men because Paul, uh, Timothy is worthy of honor. He's the proxy of Paul in every possible way. He's the extension of who Paul is. And so when we honor such men, we're honoring people like Timothy and like Epaphroditus. We know about Timothy's reputation from other parts of Scripture as well. As for the honor due Epaphroditus, well, Paul goes into more detail about his merit for such honor. Somewhere along the 400-mile journey to Rome, that's the equivalent of walking from here through New York City to get to Boston. It's almost the exact same distance that is, as Philippi was to Rome, Epaphroditus became sick to the point of dying. And he still risked his health to fulfill his service from the Philippians and from himself to Paul. Think of the honor, side note, think of the honor that he thought Paul was due, right? that he would risk his life to continue the journey. Epaphroditus' work, his faith, his service to Paul would not go unnoticed by Paul. And Paul... Here's the instruction for us. He didn't want it to go unnoticed by the church, right? It could have been quite easily, actually. Paul could have just not written anything about Epaphroditus. Here, here's this letter. Bring it back to the church. Thanks for coming. Glad you're healthy, right? He could have just said, hey, Epaphroditus was sick. He got better. Glad he's able to deliver this letter, right? He didn't have to write a lot, but he didn't. He, He chose to write more, and he chose to honor him and command the church to honor him. Kent Hughes, commenting on this honor, writes, Epaphroditus was a layman whom we never would have heard of if not for Paul's brief reference here. He served in no public capacity. He did not shepherd a flock as did Timothy. Right? He did not take the gospel to an unreached area. He did not receive special revelation, and he wrote nothing. All he did was faithfully discharge his duty by delivering a bag of money to Paul and then looking after him. And yet he is called by Paul, brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and was identified to the Philippians as apostle and minister. We must understand that to serve in some unnoticed, unrecognized place in the body of Christ is as much the work of Christ as public ministry. Right? Amen to that. Right? In a world that values prestige and position, where it seems most instinctive, most instinctive to honor men and women who achieve grand success, 
or break real or perceived social barriers, right? Or have the most outwardly appealing story of personal autonomy. God calls Christians to honor the work of Christian service. Christian service, that's what we should be honoring. That's the greatest work there is to be done. So we must honor it. And how do we do so? Right? What does Paul mean by this? Biblically, to honor someone is to give them weight or significance. As one commentator put it, honor is an attitude accompanied by actions that say you are worthy, you have value, you are a person that God has sovereignly placed in my life. I think that fits. I think that fits. Paul's not describing only what Epaphroditus has done or what Timothy has done. Right? He's describing what they are. Right? He's putting them forward as examples to follow. He's calling the Philippians not only to receive them, but to follow and listen to them, to speak well of them, to treat them with respect, to care for them just as they care for others. And here, just as we saw that unity and service go hand in hand for a Christian, so does the honoring of one another. In Romans 12, Paul, in a different letter, right, different writing, he writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let one another love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in what? Do you remember? Showing honor. Showing honor. We cannot express, we cannot just express honor with our words. We must show honor in our behavior towards one another. Remember, it was even Christ who said, in criticism of the Pharisees in Matthew 15, he called them hypocrites. What did they do? They honored him with their lips, but they had hearts that were far from him. They said one thing, they did another. Unity, service, and honor are not mutually exclusive for a Christian. Instead, it's the combination and expression of them that makes someone truly look, sound, feel, and smell like a Christian. And who among us is that example? Would someone describe our church, if they came in here, as being filled with people that are united, who serve one another, who honor one another? Would anyone describe me that way? Right? Would anyone describe you that way? We should strive for this. And we should honor each other. Doing this is itself having the mind of Christ, which is what Paul is writing about, this whole point, have the mind of Christ. Remember, Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of whom Timothy and Epaphroditus are just examples. Christ is the perfect one. And it was Christ who was united with God and the people called by God. It was Christ who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant to men and women. It was Christ who honored his Father in heaven by listening to his Father and obeying his Father, not just giving him lip service, but actually obeying him even to the point of death on a cross. And it is by Christ's work that we're united with one another, now serve one another, and honor Christ and one another. This is the narrative of the Christian. This is what it is to look, sound, feel, and smell like a Christian and like Christ. We need to be these Christians toward one another. We need to be these Christians for men and women in our lives that don't yet know Christ. Right? Think about that. We have to remember that. Unity is hard here. We've got to fight for it. We've got to serve one another. We've got to honor each other. And we've got to do that for the work of God in the world too. That other people would see us and see Christ. 
And in closing, I want to recall a story I heard and read many years ago, one I think deliberately and wonderfully tells what it is to look, sound, feel, and smell like a Christian. Okay, remember, a people in a culture apart from God, they move aggressively toward disunity. And self-trial triumphs over service. And honor is given to the wrong things. Evil is called good. So how can we be Christians to a world like that? This is a story from Yugoslavia in the mid-20th century, when much of the hierarchy of the church there had been corrupted by church officials seeking their own power and their own social status. Remember what I said, you stay in the church long enough, you'll find those stories. By God's mercy and grace, it won't be here. A Christian minister named Yaakov came to a small village. He met a man there, and he shared with him the love of Christ. And the man interrupted him. And he told him he wanted nothing to do with Christ or with Christianity. And he recounted to him how church leaders were involved in the exploitation of people, even to the point of allowing or looking the other way when innocent people were being killed in uprisings and conflicts. Right? They only looked out for themselves, he said. And he described the church leaders as wearing decorated coats, hats, and crosses. He said what they wear signifies a heavenly commission. But their evil designs and lives... I can't ignore that. And Yaakov heard this. He thought about it. And one day he asked the man, what if one day I were to steal your coat, put it on, and rob a bank in town? And suppose the police saw me running away, but I escaped. And suppose someone recognized the coat I was wearing, and the police came to you and accused you of the crime. What would you say? And the man said he would deny committing the crime. And Yaakov challenged him, but the police saw your coat. It must be you, they would say. Now, the question, the analogy, kind of bothered the man, right? You can hear where this is going, okay? And he just got real upset with that, and he wouldn't talk more about it. It was the end of the conversation. And that was really the end of that conversation. As time went by, Yaakov the minister would come and meet this man every now and then, and he would serve other people in the town. And one day, years later, I don't know exactly how long, it was years later, the story doesn't say, the man asked Yaakov, he said, how does one become a Christian? Right? And Yaakov answered the question by talking about repentance for sin and trust in the work of Christ. And the man knelt down and he surrendered his life to Christ. And then the man looked at Yaakov and he said, thank you for being in my life. You wear his coat very well. I, I love that story. What did Yaakov do that led this man to Christ? Did he win the argument? No. Was, did he see as a battle someone to just kind of convince? No. Right? Did he just agree to say, ah, agree to disagree. You go your way, I'll go mine. No. Did he just serve him one time and walk away? So, well, he's not going to come along. I'm done serving that guy. No. Right? He continued to look, sound, feel, and smell like a Christian to him and many others in the town. Like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, he was a living example of unity with the person of Christ without duplicity. He served those around him for their interest and the welfare of others. He honored God, not just by speaking as a Christian, but also one, the one that lived like a Christian, obedience to God. Even to an unbeliever, his being a Christian is what God used to bow a knee and bring a confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. May we be Christians that wear his, quote, his coat really well. Amen. Bow your heads as I pray for us. God, thank you.
for the spirit that leads us to knowledge and discernment for loving you and being united with one another. God, thank you for the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus who are united in your name and you genuinely serve for the interests of others. Thank you for the men and women in our lives that serve like Christ. We pray we would follow their example in our service to others and that we would honor such men and women as you have called us to be. As we come to the table, we confess it is Christ who is the perfect servant to all of us who believe and that he is Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.